Ben Garrison. I am here with uh, attorney Joe Deneler. I am the national program director for Elite MGA, uh, a leading provider of home inspector you know, and general liability insurance for, for inspectors across the country and InterNACHI members um, uh, with our uh, insurance program that we formed exclusively for the membership. And Joe and I uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit today about the importance of having an inspection agreement where you can find them, the purpose they serve, and commonly and frequently asked questions about these agreements um, to help inspectors get a better idea of, of, of how they can be helpful and what, what's involved um, with getting a good one and, and what's, what a good one entails. Um, so with that, um, Joe? Sure. You know, Ben and I are with Elite MGA and, and we own a captive insurance company called Elite Re that has a unique program with InterNACHI. Um, regarding an insurance program, especially for InterNACHI members. It's a risk purchasing group, uh, usually called the InterNACHI Insurance Program. So I manage all claims that come in for the program and Ben is our national uh, program manager for the entire thing. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about them, the agreements in a minute, but as I said, if you need any information related to our products or services, you can go to eiipro.com or send me an email and we'll put Ben's contact information in the chat as well. Uh, for anybody that needs it. So we're going to talk a little bit about the purpose of a pre-inspection agreement, some basic contract principles that go into every agreement, uh, some of the critical clauses that we see. We'll talk a bit about liquidated damages, and then we'll talk a little bit about arbitration clauses. Um, the general purpose of the agreement is, is to protect you, right? But it's also there to educate your client on what products, services, um, or, or scope of work you're going to perform for that client under this inspection. We want to keep symmetry among all of your, all of your documents that go into the inspection. That, that includes the inspection agreement and your inspection report. And you should always try to make sure that those things uh, can cohabitate together peacefully. And what I mean by that is that you're using the same terminology in the report as you do in the agreement. So if you're doing things in a state where there's no regs, and you're doing them according to the InterNACHI standards of practice, uh, in that instance, um, you are doing these, uh, you are setting up your report, hopefully, to match up those standards, and your agreement should say I'm doing them under the InterNACHI standards. And so the terminology should be uh, equal. So you're looking in the InterNACHI standards for material defects, and you want to make sure that that shows up somewhere in your report and your agreement that tells the client, this is what I'm going to do. And then, of course, if you are in a state that's regulated, you want to make sure that your contract cites to the state regulations under which you do your work. Um, and because we want to make sure that the consumer is fully educated about what it is you do. And more importantly, uh, in a state that has regulations for home inspectors, they generally require that you do adhere to them. And so you want to make sure that your agreement matches those standards and what the state says you have to do. Um, it should set out the understanding between you and your clients uh, and let your clients know what you will and will not do. And probably the will not do is the more important part of that equation. Um, and it should protect you from litigation or afford you defenses against liability, some of which we're going to speak about here. Um, ben, I, my camera's going in and out a little on my end. I'm going to go... Um, uh, okay. You know what? I can see everything fine. Okay, good. Um, the contract needs to be easy to read. Um, it needs to, oh, 
Can you still see my screen, Ben? Yep, I can see your screen. Perfect, okay. So the agreement should definitely be easy to read. It must not be unconscionable. And what we mean by that is it can't be so one-sided that a judge or an arbitrator would say, this is so tilted toward the inspector that we can't possibly enforce this agreement. And then it must inform the consumer of any important provisions and set them apart from the rest of the language in the agreement. You see, I used italics and underlining and bold there. The point I'm trying to make is if, if there's a clause in your agreement where your client is essentially giving up some right they would normally have or giving up the ability to bring a lawsuit against you or to seek damages above your uh, fee, if you are in a state where we can do limitation of liability, in that situation, then you want to make sure that that language is set apart from the rest of the language. So it calls the reader's attention to it. And that way they, they see it and they're aware of it. Because when we have to enforce this agreement, when we go to court, it's much easier for us to do that if the, the claimant can really have no excuse whatsoever um, for not seeing this and understanding it when they sign the agreement. And, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but that also leads to the importance of getting them the agreement well before it's time for them or time for the inspection, because we want to give them as much lead time as possible to have reviewed that agreement. So if we do have a dispute later on, they can't come back and say, well, I showed up at the inspection and the inspector just shoved the agreement in my face and I signed it and I really didn't know what I was doing. And he was already, or she was already working on the inspection anyway. We want to avoid all that. We want to give them an opportunity to appreciate what it is they're agreeing to do and what they're agreeing to in terms of limitations on that before you actually do your work. I think, Joe, simply put, when you look at the actual term pre-inspection agreement, it's called a pre-inspection agreement for a reason as opposed to a post-inspection agreement. That's exactly uh, right. At the expense of stating the obvious and being too remedial here, but that... Um, that is, um, I think, a critical piece of this um, in making sure that it's signed uh, before with ample time to deliver it, um, especially with today's world with the software programs um, and the delivery mechanisms. Once the onboarding takes place and the, the appointment is scheduled, um, getting that agreement to them as soon as possible. Yeah. And so here you can see the slide here that talks about, you know, a best practice I found. And so, you know, I, I spent 20 years as a litigation attorney, I became general counsel for Elite and for our, our captive insurance company with Internachi. And um, this was a lot of the litigation was about interpreting and trying to enforce these agreements because there's a lot of good stuff in there to insulate you from liability. The problem I invariably ran into a lot was what I just said, the, the client comes into court and says, well, I shouldn't be bound by this agreement that says I give up my right to sue for more than the fee because you know, the inspector threw it at me after they already did the work. Um, or, you know, they had me sign it after, after they did the inspection. You know, any number of ways they can try to get out of this, they will. So I always say, you know, key the timing of the agreement of the sending to when you make the appointment for the inspection in the first place. Um, it would be in your best practice to send it out as soon as they make the appointment in some way and make sure it's signed before you start the work. Now, some states require that meaning that you are not allowed to start the work without a signed agreement and it could be a violation of your state regulation to do so. New Jersey is a good example of that. If you're in a state that doesn't regulate that part of your work at all in terms of, of when the agreement gets signed or if you even have to use one, uh, then in that situation, I would recommend to you that you, you try to send it out at least one business day or two business days after they make the appointment 
So it's right there. Now there are always going to be occasions where you can't do that. That an agent calls you on a you know Thursday afternoon and says, "I need this inspection tomorrow. You know we screwed up. Can you help us out?" There's going to be occasions where you can't do it in 24 or 48 hours of the time of the uh, making of the appointment, and that's okay. But that should be the 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 anomaly. That shouldn't be the rule, right? It should be the exception. And so for the most part, you want to make sure you get these signed. Um, prior to even putting the ladder on the house to look at the, the roof. And you should remember too that you're writing for a target audience here. The, the people we want to understand your agreement, we certainly want judges and, and other lawyers and arbitrators and uh, anybody else involved in the claims or litigation system to understand what's in your agreement if we're going to try to enforce it. But your client needs to understand it. And, and there's a lot of confusion among you know, people who don't work on residential construction or really aren't familiar with how a house works. Um, they get confused by the terminology you use in the report sometimes, and sometimes that can bleed into the agreement. So we wanna make sure in the agreement, especially we're using very vanilla broad or very vanilla base language to explain to people what it is you're doing and not doing and explain some of these defenses. Keep in mind that the average American reads at a seventh, eighth grade reading level. Now I've seen, Data recently it seems to suggest it might even be lower than that. Um, I have an eighth grader. Uh, I have an older daughter who was an eighth grader. Um, she's pretty bright, um, but but for the most part, we're, we're writing these agreements for people who speak at a, a 13 to 14 year old level and have that vocabulary. Um, so you want to avoid using trade terms and, and things that only make sense to you. But if you do have to use a particular term to describe a system component or condition, you want to make sure that you're using a term that your client will understand or that you're explaining that term for the client in some way. Some people choose to do that with definitions in the agreement. Some people do it more in the report. And Ben, if you want to look at, take a look at the chat and see if we have any questions. Yeah. Um, one, one, thing, one thing, Joe, that, um, that I've found is I've asked, um, when, I, when I sit on the front lines and I deal with the initial claim call that comes in and discussing the circumstance with, uh, with one of our insureds, I oftentimes reference their inspection agreement and ask them if certain clauses are in their inspection agreement. And, and, and more often than not, they're not sure. So I think it's important not only for the client to understand what uh, is in the agreement, but it's hard for them to understand it if the inspector themselves haven't read through it, really try to absorb and understand what they're asking their clients to agree to. Yeah, that's exactly so, right. It's important that, that you read and understand it because you need to explain it. Now, you know, you, invariably, I, you know, you'll come across a client who will want to talk about the content of that agreement and maybe want to make changes to it. And you need to be at least familiar with why things are in there that are in there. We had one chat question here. It said, I'd like to know if I can add this verbiage below as I had a client that was upset that I canceled the appointment due to having seven inches of snow on its way. It was 24 hours notice. She demanded her money back since I didn't have it in my pre-inspection pre agreement. Hmm. So I'm not quite sure I follow the, uh, the question there necessarily. It was referencing something, a slide from earlier. Okay. Well, maybe if you could rephrase that a little bit, whoever had asked it, we can, um, I can try to answer it as best I can. Add this verb. So the verbiage below, he wants to add, and this is from uh, John. Quote, cancellation and reschedule policy will be in place subject to inclement weather events and other emergencies that can occur due to the detriment of our business operations can include building fires, tornadoes, thunderstorms, snow, hurricanes, flooding, 
inspection company will reach out to you either via email, phone call, and text to reschedule the appointment once the weather condition normalizes. Yeah, I mean, really, there's no regulation. You know, even the states that are regulated don't really regulate it down to that level. I mean, you're certainly allowed to make decisions for, you know, how you want to run your business and operate it, and scheduling is part of that. So that's perfectly acceptable. All right. Yep. We don't have Ben here. I'm having all these technical difficulties. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, some of the critical clauses, Ben, if you want to interrupt me whenever with questions. Sure. If, with regard to the critical clauses, some of the basic information that needs to be in your agreement includes the price of the home inspection, uh, description of the systems and components that will be inspected, the name and address of the clients, the address of the home to be inspected, and the date and time of the home inspection. Um, now, we recently uh, did an overhaul and review of the InterNACHI inspection agreements, and we'll put the link. Uh, but you, if you're a member of InterNACHI, obviously, and hopefully everybody on here is, uh, you can go right into the members area and have access to all of our new uh, home inspection agreements that we wrote specific to every state in the country. So if you're a home inspector in New Jersey, there's an agreement there that is written based on the New Jersey home inspection standards of practice uh, and so forth and so on. And those are free to any InterNACHI member. And we took our time with those. It took a while to put those together, um, but we think we put out a really good product. You know, we had my input, Nick's input, uh, and people, you know, obviously we had inspectors involved in that as well. Um, and I think they came out really good. And so a lot of this stuff, if you're using those agreements, this more will explain why things are in there that are in there. Um, but if you haven't had the opportunity, I would, I would say take a look at those um, because again, they're free and, and they're written based on the things I'm gonna talk about here. Uh, in addition, we're working on ancillary service agreements um, and it bears repeating, I say it often, but if you're doing a service in addition to home inspection, you really need to have an agreement in some fashion for that service. Now. What a lot of inspectors do is take a base home inspection agreement and create like a rider that's one or two paragraphs about that ancillary service because a, these inspection agreements in and of themselves, there's a lot of clauses that repeat. You know, it can be the home inspection agreement, a sewer scope agreement, a termite inspection agreement. There'll be clauses in there that are the same because they're basic clauses that need to be in all agreements to help protect you and make them enforceable. And so you don't want to repeat that over and over. If you have the same client buying two services, you don't want to hand them a pile of paper that's essentially the same except for a couple changes. You can add a rider to your inspection agreement that details the scope of work for that particular service. And again, it's, it's important that you do that because we want your client to, to have an understanding of what it is you're going to do. And we want to be able to prove if you have a claim that we have to deal with with insurance, we want to be able to prove um, that you did what you said you would do. And so we want to make sure that that agreement matches up with everything it needs to match up with in order to do that. Um, you need to have, uh, if you're using a, an inspection agreement in a state that has regulations, you want to make sure that you're adhering to those statutory and regulatory requirements, including uh, providing key definitions that might be in your statute. If there's particular disclaimers or language that needs to be in there, I know in New Jersey, again, New Jersey is always a good example of the heavily regulated states. Um, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Texas, um, are, are, and Florida are the most heavily regulated. But we also have 
uh, language in particular with New Jersey. I know there's specific language in Illinois that has to be in the agreement. Um, there's specific language in the Arizona inspection regulations that say you have to do it pursuant to a certain standard. And so it's important you make sure you adhere to those, those statutory and regulatory requirements. Now we did, when we wrote the new InterNACHI agreements, um, look of course at every statutory and regulatory requirement for home inspectors. Um, and so we, you know, if you're getting our New Jersey agreement, it's got the right language in there for New Jersey and so on and so forth. All right, and let me see. Hold on guys, apologize about that. There we go. Um, you wanna make sure that you're citing again, like I said, the exact standards of practice that are gonna be used. Um, any statutory or regulatory based exclusions that need to be in there. I know there's uh, at least two or three states that indicate that you have to note in the contract that you are not going to be inspecting for certain things, including uh, environmental hazards like mold and mildew. Uh, or, or toxins that might be in asbestos or other um, asbestos containing materials. And then the state will usually dictate whether you can use additional defensive clauses like arbitration clauses, limitation of liability clauses, uh, liquidated damages clauses, et cetera. And you'll see, um, we'll talk about arbitration in a second. We did not include arbitration clauses in the new InterNACHI agreements. Um, for a reason, um, but you know, you can certainly put one in if, if you feel that you want to have one or if your insurance carrier requires it. We don't. Um, at the InterNACHI uh, Elite Insurance Program, we don't, we don't require arbitration. That's why they're not in ours. But if you require it, uh, InterNACHI has a clause that you can use that I've given them and we'll certainly provide it to you upon request. Um, and, and liquidated damages or limit of liability is the clause that says, you know, even if you're right and I did something wrong, the best you can get is a return of the fee or some multiple of that. They're useful in different states and some states you're not allowed to use them, some states you are. And so we looked at that when we did the InterNACHI agreement as well. Hey, Joe. Yeah. So in a state like uh, New Jersey, for example, you can't use a liquidated damages or limited limit of liability clause, correct? Or for the, well, New for Jersey, the inspection fee? Yeah, in New Jersey, it's even worse than that because what happens in addition to that is New Jersey has... Uh, a couple of consumer protection laws. One is called the um, Truth and Consumer Contract Warranty and Notice Act. And what judges have found in New Jersey is that the mere inclusion of a limitation of liability clause violates that consumer protection statute because the New Jersey Appellate Division Court has already, yeah, you can see how complicated this is already, but a New Jersey court decided that any limitation of liability under the insurance requirement of a half a million dollars is uh, against public policy and void. And so the New Jersey courts have, have now said that that also means that if you include it, it may be a consumer fraud violation as well. So on the one hand, on the one hand, the state of New Jersey requires a half a million dollars of VNO insurance. So if that's the case, a home inspector limiting their liability to the cost of the inspection fee or a multiple would then be violating uh, consumer law, which basically contravenes the licensing and insurance act. Yeah, it's very convoluted. And I really wish before I stopped, you know, day-to-day -day litigation work um, that I had a chance to take a crack at that at the New Jersey Supreme Court level, because I think we could have flipped it. But yeah, essentially what they decided is because the legislature, when they created the New Jersey home inspection licensing law said, you have to carry at least $500,000 of E&O insurance coverage in order to be an inspector. 
Um, what, because the legislature set it at 500, it would be against the legislative intent of the statute to allow an inspector to limit their liability under that half a million dollar minimum insurance. Right. And so what it means is you can't limit your liability to anything except the up to $500,000, which of course is useless in the home inspection context because we very rarely see cases um, of that magnitude with home inspections. We do. I mean, we certainly get death cases and things that we've had to deal with. And I see every claim that comes into our inspection or to our insurance carrier. Um, and yeah, and in my career of practicing and representing home inspectors, I've dealt with death cases. So it's important that, you know, we keep in mind that the, the most cases are never going to hit $500,000. And so what New Jersey's done is essentially said, every time you walk in a house, you're exposed to a half a million dollars, whether you like it or not. My theory always was, you know, if you want to keep home inspections affordable for everybody, uh, Bobby and Susie, first time buyer with three small kids, et cetera. Um, in order to do that, there needs to be a trade-off. And that means that, you know, if we're going to do it at this price, we need to have some insulation from our liability for doing this job. Because if inspectors charged what they really deserved, we'd be talking about thousands of dollars for each inspection based on the risk you undertake. And so as a public policy matter, if we can limit the inspector's risks, they can keep the price down. It does decrease the litigation between buyers and sellers because if home inspections aren't affordable, people are gonna get them without an inspection, just like you saw in this market where they had to give up the inspection order to buy a house for a few months. Um, what's gonna happen is, is you're gonna have the courts flooded with cases between buyers and sellers and against agents for non-disclosure. Home inspection plays a critical role, not just in insulating the buyer, but it insulates everybody in the transaction because you're an objective reporter of the conditions based on your experience and training. And so, you know, in my mind, it's a valuable service and, and there should be some trade-off on the exposure. But as it stands right now, I think probably about 25, 26 states, we can still limit liability. Some are better than others. Uh, Texas is far and away the best one. Uh, right after that is a state like Pennsylvania and there's several other states. Um, Illinois. Illinois is great. In fact, we just got, you know, one of the good things, one of the things you have to do when you, when you own your own insurance company and you, de you defend your own claims is you better have really good attorneys representing your insureds. And, you know, I'm, that's how I, my practice ran primarily on that for many years. Um, and so I'm hard on the attorneys that we pick for the, uh, our panel. We had a real ace in Chicago and got, not only got the limitation of liability enforced in a Chicago court, which is tough, but in addition to to that uh, got a ruling that um, that they had to pay, that the claimant would have to pay the inspector's fees if, if they couldn't sustain the lawsuit. And the judge gave us a written opinion, which means we can use that and cite to that in other cases. Uh, so that was tremendous, but that's, that's all part of the risk management you know, aspect of what we do as an insurance carrier. In addition to making sure these agreements are right, we make sure we have the right attorneys representing you so we can get the best result for you possible. Um, so when we're talking about communicating the scope and the agreement, one of the things we want to do is define the services being offered. And again, cite the standards that you're going to use. Uh, if you're in a state like Colorado with no regulations, you're going to use the InterNACHI standards of practice. That should be so cited in your agreement. You'll see um, if you do look at the agreements we've provided, um, if you're in a state with no regulations, they default to the InterNACHI standards of practice. And so what you'll see in that agreement is a lot of the language pulled right from the InterNACHI standards. I apologize if you can hear my dogs barking in the background. Our office, we blew the water heater 
um, and flooded out the office over the weekend. So we're all working from home again. And so I apologize in advance um, for any background noise you might hear. Um, this is just an example, um, again, using New Jersey because they're so heavily regulated. This is language that, that actually has to be, um, and it's this language right here. Uh, home inspectors, whoop. Home inspectors, uh, there we go. It's this language right here. Home inspectors are governed by the rules in the New Jersey Administrative Code and the licensees shall comply with these rules. This is specific in the New Jersey home inspection regulations. It says you have to have this word for word in your agreement. And so when I talk about your state having peculiar things that you might have to do, this is one of those things where the New Jersey agreement has to have this language in it. And so this is what I mean when we talk about communicating the scope of work within the body of an agreement. Okay. Now let's see some of the other critical clauses here. There we go. Now, if you are in a state that has its own regulations, you don't want to double up. You shouldn't be putting that we're going to do it according to the, the state regulations and the InterNACHI regulations. The InterNACHI regulations, uh, if you're in a regulated state, the InterNACHI standards will fill in the gaps. So if, if your state is silent on a particular issue, you can use the InterNACHI standards to fill in the gaps. But if you're in a state that, that speaks to every issue related to your scope of work and exclusions, uh, then you're just going to cite to that, that state standard of practice. Um, Pennsylvania is a good example where there's a law in place, but they never set the standards of practice. You can use InterNACHI standards of practice as, as you know, your, your schematic, so to speak, for doing your work. The laws of your state are always going to be primary, and uh, any other regulations are going to be secondary to those. And at the very at the best they can do, um, is, is fill in the gap where there's an issue with the state regulation or, or a gap in that regulation. And this is just something that talks about, again, uh, an example of how we, we describe for a client what will be in the home inspection report. Um, this is an example from a state that had certain language that was required. Uh, if, you're in a, if you're in a state that's not regulated, um, in the InterNACHI agreements that we did, we defined this, uh, the report as, you know, what will be um, observed and deemed material, like it says in the InterNACHI standards. Uh, ben, well, I see a few questions in there. Let me, will the slides be available to us? Um, actually, the ones that are available to you um, are already online. We recorded a shorter version um, of a, of a discussion of inspection agreements within the body of some of the videos we just put up on the InterNACHI website. Um, so they're there, but if you wanna shoot me an email after, um, and I'll, my email will be up in the, in the chat, Ben's gonna put our email addresses in there. If you wanna send me an email after, I'll send you a PDF of the slides, sure. Uh, also, how does California compare? Um, well, California has regulations, but they don't have standards of practice. And what that means is that um, in our agreement, you would see that we cite to uh, the InterNACHI 
be standards of practice is the actual standard and the California law, but the California law doesn't say what you have to do and not do. It does say you can't limit your liability to the cost of the inspection, um, but it doesn't get into too much other than that. Um, so California, in terms of claims, um, not our worst state by, by far. Um, I'll tell you right now, we just did a review again, um, end of month review for January. And once again, New Jersey is far and away the, the leader in, in incidents and claims uh, in our program, um, followed after that by Tennessee, of all places. And I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around why Tennessee is so bad. Ben, you have an interesting theory on that, right? Yeah, um, it's probably everyone moving from New Jersey or California. <laughs> yeah. Um, people are leaving California, where I live, um, uh, left and right, and moving to places like Tennessee. And uh, they're buying houses sight unseen and, um, and and taking that risk and then finding out that what they what they thought they were buying and what they actually bought are two different things. And what better person to blame than a uh, than a home inspector for for something they didn't do their due diligence on as a as a buyer? That's right. Um, so again, I think that just gives um, credence to the importance of having these agreements signed, having them delivered in a timely fashion, and making sure that everyone, if they've, chances are they might not read it, um, but at least you can say it was delivered in a timely manner. Um, if consumers, I feel like in today's world, and I'm, I, I, I think I'm one of them, um, whether I'm checking into a hotel, running a car, updating my Apple software, I could probably... Um, give whatever vendor my, my firstborn child, not knowing uh, what I just signed my life away to. <laughs> you'd think that people that are making the biggest investment of their lives in a, in a home would, would read everything, whether it's the agreement, the report, um, that they would read these things thoroughly. And I just don't think it happens. And I oftentimes ask uh, in, inspectors, um, who, has read your, who has read your insurance policy cover to cover? And if I was sitting in a room full of 50 inspectors and an asset, maybe one will, will have two maybe. So the point being is we have an expectation to some degree that you understand what you're buying from us from an insurance policy, just like you have an expectation of your clientele reading your inspection report and your agreement. But consumers generally will look for the highlights, look for anything, just the, the cliff's notes and not, not do uh, their due diligence and do all the reading that they should when, with an investment of this magnitude. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm always shocked and amazed by that. And listen, I mean, I'm, I'm no financial guru, but if I'm making an investment, you know, north of in the six figure range, wherever you may fall uh, or seven figure range, I'm, I kind of want to read the prospectus on my investment. I want to see, you know, what an expert in the field of home inspection wants to tell me. And more importantly, um, I want to hear from the experts that the inspector is going to tell me I need to retain to look at specific issues like structure and foundation and, and the roof, uh, roofing and the roof structure, because that's where most of our claims come from, um, our structure and roof. When we talk about, you know, in your agreement, you want to cite the, the exclusions. And I mentioned earlier about, you know, how the InterNACHI standards of practice fill in the gaps. There's some states, um, Florida is one of them, Arizona is one, that aren't real detailed on the exclusions. I'm sorry, not Arizona, Illinois is one. Um, they're not real specific on the exclusions. And so they kind of leave it up to the inspector to, to put in their written agreement what it is they're, they're going to do and not do. And so 
Uh, you want to make sure that if you're if you're in a state that doesn't have its own set of exclusions, you, you're using at least the InterNACHI exclusions because you want to make things clear to the, the client, uh, particularly in terms of the things you're not going to do. So uh, if you take a look at the InterNACHI agreements, uh, the ones we did for states with no regulations, you'll see those exclusions and they mirror um, sometimes word for word the InterNACHI exclusions. Uh, in the states that are regulated, the agreements we did there, if they have exclusions, we've put them in and we've filled in the gap from time to time with some things that that state might not have, have thought about. Um, but you want to make sure that those, those exclusions, at least the general ones, you know, and what I'm talking about are, you know, the inspector is not going to move furniture, the inspector is not going to uh, take actions that would impact the inspector's safety or the safety of anyone at the home. Uh, the inspector is not going to take actions to destroy the condition of the home. Um, you know, the inspector can't go in a space that's less than, you know, a certain amount of, of access. All those things are the things that really should be in your inspection agreement, because those things are universal. No matter what system or component you're inspecting, these things will apply to the whole job. Um, and so you might have limitations caused by visual inspection. Like I said, you're not going to move things. Um, you're not going to remove wall coverings, ceilings or floors uh, and so forth. Uh, safety issues, like I mentioned, it's unsafe for the inspector to walk the roof because there's snow on it. You're going to put that in the agreement. Um, if if uh, there's an issue because of pests, like you, you look into the crawl space and you see eyes looking back at you, that's something that, again, would be a safety issue. And, and that would apply universally no matter what system and component you're looking at. Uh, we generally don't opine on life expectancy of systems and components, although I do often see inspectors in their reports that I get in for claims and I've had many claims related to this, uh, tell people how old the roof is or how long it's going to last. And we do get a lot of claims where they come back and say, well, you told me it was, you know, I had 25 years and a roofer came out and told me that that was wrong. I only had a year of life left on this roof. Um, and in some situations, when you make that, you know, that representation to your client, even though you're not required to, you may be buying that liability. And so you want to make sure if you're giving life expectancy in any for any system or component, you want to make sure you have a very, very good resource to back that up. Um, and then, of course, we don't, we're not obligated to talk about the causes of any conditions, deficiencies, or material defects we find during the course of the inspection. Uh, that's up to your client to do with, a, with another expert or through their own investigation. And some of the other exclusions that you should mention in your agreement. You're not going to predict future conditions that may occur. Um, <laughs> I just got one in where, yeah, you know, the inspection's like 18 months old, and it's a condo with an exterior deck and, and our insured inspected it 18 months ago, and, and there were some issues there. Um, you know, hanger joists needed and, and some other supports needed, and there was a recommendation as to you know uh, increasing the the load capacity by you know adding some things to that. And recommending that they, you know, they take it to a deck uh, contractor, and of course they didn't do that. But now, eighteen months later, the deck's starting to come away from the building. Well, yeah, things change. <laughs> In eighteen months, things might change. At the time, the insured, our insured, was there. I mean, it looked fine, and we have the photographs to back that up. But that's when I say it, it's also good to put this in the agreement that you know the client needs to understand that things may change in the future. You know, homes are subject to the elements; they're subject to living in it. They're subject to damage. 
they're subject to displacement from the soil. There's a lot of things that can go on in a home, and especially over the period of 18 months. Now, that's why in, in the agreements we just wrote, where we're allowed to do it uh, in, in particular states, we include a clause in there that says that you agree that you will not bring any litigation against us uh, more than one year after the date of the delivery of the inspection report. The reason we do that is because, number one, you know, we want to we cap that time period because things can change so dramatically over time that it's unfair you know, for an inspector to have to defend against the condition of a house five years later when they saw it you know, five years before, and we know things can change. In almost every claim I get with a contractor, they're telling these people that, well, you know, your inspector should have seen this. There's no way this wasn't here X number of years ago. I mean, I even had one guy literally under oath in a deposition try to argue to me that he saw ant droppings in an attic. And from that, he was able to tell that this water and moisture condition had lasted for several years, which, of course, forced me to have to ask him about his, you know, history of training in ant frass. And you know what studies he did, or what what scientific work he did to make that determination, and and it unravels very quickly. But there's still people out there who will who will use that tactic to try to bring a claim against an inspector. And so we want to make sure that it's perfectly clear that you know we're not dealing with future conditions at all. And we also disclaim operating costs. You know that's not our job to tell you how fuel or you know how much fuel oil your your furnace is going to burn over the course of the winter of 2023. Um, that's just something we don't do. Code compliance. You know, although a lot of the things we, we report touch on codes, the reality is, is we're not bound to, to cite code as a particular reason for a material defect. And the, the reason is, you know, codes change. It might have been fine when this house was built, but it's different now. And, and you can't judge it based on current codes. That's why inspectors instead are focusing on safety and habitability issues rather than code issues, though those may overlap. And of course, we don't report on market value um, and we don't report on or we don't perform any destructive testing in the property, primarily because most of the time you're doing it for the buyer and the buyer doesn't own that property that you're uh, being asked to, to destroy uh, with destructive testing. I think we got so we had a request to um, critique a home inspection agreement um, from one of our um, from one of the attendees here. So I just asked to, to email that to, uh, to, to you and myself. Okay. Unless you're seeing something different than I am. Wait, I'm sorry. Unless you're seeing something different than I am on the chat, the last question was um, just asking for a critique of, uh, of an oh, agreement. Okay. okay, good. Yeah, you can. If you're one of our insureds, you can send that to me. Uh, my my email address will be up there, and you can send it to me, and I'll take a look at it. We do review the agreements for our insureds. Um, some of the other general exclusions that, that need to make it into your agreement, and here's just an example of that. Um, we created that this, I can't remember which state this was from, uh, but this is just an example of how somebody put up, you know, the general exclusions and things in their agreement. Um, you know, it's a little bit difficult to read this way. I would say maybe if you could break it up and of course it's an ashy one, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't take credit for what goes into their agreements. Um, but it, this is an example kind of how it lays out, but it, when you look at this, it looks like it's just a pile of words. And what we tried to do in the Internachi agreements was change that and, you know, separate these things out a little bit according to section or, you know, uh, put different letters in there or something in there to break it up for the reader. So it's easier to, to comprehend and understand uh, when they receive it. 
This is just an example of an exclusion where uh, an inspector was trying to explain to the client that, you know, we don't remove finishes. And so that's the drywall, the paneling, suspended ceiling tiles, et cetera. Um, and so we have that up there um, so that, you know, or we have this in the agreement so that the client understands that, that we're not going to do anything here that relates to moving things that don't belong to you. Um, now you can, you can do this in any number of ways. I pulled this from a, a, an inspection agreement that was involved in a claim of ours. Um, and this, this was helpful because, you know, part of the claim was that the inspector was supposed to move suspended ceiling tiles. And, you know, the inspector put right in the agreement, I'm not going to do that. And so it, it was kind of hard for the plaintiff to argue that they, they had a different understanding of what the scope of work was going to be. Um, now, this is just an example of, you know, somebody excluding environmental issues. Uh, and so you can see the, the laundry list, uh, asbestos, radon, lead, urea, formaldehyde, mold, mildew, fungus, odors, noise, toxic or flammable chemicals, water, or air quality, PCBs, and so forth. Um, this is kind of, this is just an example, again, from another uh, claim where somebody was explaining to the client that they didn't do any kind of hazmat. Um, and then, you know, in addition, this was a mold claim, as I remember it. And so right there in the, in the inspection agreement, it was in a state where um, they don't have a set of exclusions in the statute for home inspectors for the regulations. So the inspector had to do it. And the claim was about mold. And there it was. We're not there to, to find mold. Now, the argument usually then becomes, well, yeah, it wasn't that you were supposed to find mold, but you were supposed to find, supposed to find the water intrusion problem that led to mold. Um, and that, that's true as long as, it, again, it's visible and readily accessible to you. Uh, but for the most part, unless you're getting paid, you're not there to look for mold. And so it's, that's usually one of the hazmats that are excluded. I would say to you that if you're doing your own agreement, uh, you want to be specific about these hazmats. You, know, you don't want just want to say hazardous materials. You don't want to leave it open for a judge or an arbitrator to make a decision about you know, what your agreement says. And, and while we're on the topic of arbitration, I'll speak to that a little bit because I've mentioned it earlier. Um, we didn't include arbitration clauses in our agreement. Um, there's pros and cons to arbitration. The big cons are that you can't appeal the decision. So if the arbitrator makes a mistake about the application of the law to your case or any other error that's not fraud, you're stuck with it. And so in the world of home inspectors, we have all these states that have specific regulations and they're the law. And so if the arbitrator makes a mistake on a, a interpreting or applying those standards or makes a mistake where they should have enforced a limitation of liability agreement in a, you know, in a contract and they don't, we can't appeal that. We're stuck with it. We have to live with it. If we're in a court and that happens, we have an appellate court to go to or the state Supreme Court if we had to, to try to get to make sure that that you know, justice is being done and that, that you're being held to the standard you're supposed to be held to. Um, the other problem we've run into with arbitration is that they will not um, allow us to file motions in advance before we have to spend all the money on, you know, defending the case. And so what happens is, you know, in court, the plaintiff files a complaint, we file an answer to that, or we might file a motion if that state allows us to try to dismiss the case based on any number of defenses we might have, usually the ones that are in your agreement, like limitation of liability. If we can enforce limitation of liability in the beginning of the case, 
well, it's less likely the plaintiff's going to pursue that and spend a bunch of money on their lawyer and a bunch of time when their best day is going to be a refund of the fee. And so, you know, these claims, they, they accumulate dollars and value and cost because we have to hire the attorneys to represent you through this whole litigation process. And obviously, if we have to do it for a year and conduct discovery, which is the process where we spend most of the money, that's where you're, you know, producing all your files, we're de taking depositions of witnesses and parties to the suit, we're hiring experts, we're making evaluations, all the money in litigation is spent right there. And so if we have a situation where we're in a state that allows limitation of liability, and we have an agreement that's written appropriately to enforce that, well, if we can enforce that at the beginning of the case, we're going to avoid all of that discovery expense. And the reason it's good for the insured is that's how your premiums go up, is when you have a claim where we have to spend a lot of money defending you, or we have to pay a lot of money toward a settlement above your deductible. And so if we can eliminate that exposure, we can keep your insurance rates way down and the insurance rates for everybody way down. Um, but in arbitration, they rarely, if ever, in fact, I, you know, I can't think of an occasion in the last 10 years when an arbitrator has let me do this, uh, is file a motion in advance to let the arbitrator decide on the limit of liability. Because once they can do that, well, then, you know, that might be the end of the case. And, and because we generally can't do that in arbitration, they want to make us do our discovery and have our whole hearing before they'll rule on that issue. And, and that's a reason why, you know, we, we like to avoid arbitration. Now, if you're an InterNACHI member who's not insured with us, um, you need to check with your insurance provider. Some of them require you to have an arbitration clause in your agreement. So if you're one of those people and you're unfortunately not insured with the InterNACHI program, um, I'm happy to give you an arbitration clause you can use, or more better yet, you should contact your insurance provider and, and ask them for one um, and put it in there. But we didn't include it automatically. Um, for the reasons I just said. If you are one of our insureds and you feel strongly about having an arbitration clause, we're fine with that. Um, you know, we're not here to, to muck about too much in, in telling you how to run your business. Um, so if you want to have one, by all means, have one. And if you need one, I have one, I'll give you. Um, but, but other than that, we didn't in include them automatically in the agreements. Uh, let's see, it looks like there's a question. Uh, again, about the slide deck. Uh, yeah, you, Ben will have my email address in there and you'll be able to get a copy of the slide deck. This is just another example of how an inspector excluded uh, environmental hazards in their, um, in their agreement. I, I, again, I would say to you, you know, plants and biological activity, I, I would be more specific about mold. You know, mold, I'll tell you right now, the, the ones, the hazmats we see the most of in, in claims uh, in our, our captive insurance company. Again, this is the benefit of owning your own company is you see every claim and you digest what goes on in it. And you try to adjust your training and education and risk management uh, um, advice to match what's going on. And so, you know, in this instance, I would say for the most part, we, it's asbestos, uh, lead, um, and uh, mold are the three uh, typical hazardous materials um, that we see in, in claims in our carrier. Uh, mold being far and away the most prevalent, but but asbestos too, because we have you know inspectors in states where uh, asbestos wrap was used on on uh, ductwork 
and, and wrapping boilers, large boilers and things to insulate them uh, and, and used vermiculite. Um, some of the vermiculite you know, has asbestos containing materials in it. We still see that. Um, and it creates you know, a problem. And, and I would say to you, if you're looking at the clause we have here, it's, not, it's good for animals, uh, insects, birds, pets, mammals. You know, that, that kind of covers the gamut of what we might see uh, living in an attic or a, or a crawl space or a basement. Um, but it doesn't really get to the, the issues of you know, toxic, toxic materials here. And so I would say, you, know, you wanna say mold, mildew and, and similar, um, um, similar conditions. You also might wanna say you know, asbestos or other uh, cancer, potentially cancer causing materials, or if you're not doing radon testing, um, you know, a provision there that you're not gonna, you're not gonna test for radon. Um, but I would be more specific than this about the, 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 the things you're going to exclude. Now, again, if you're, if you're going to use the agreements we've prepared for you um, through InterNACHI, um, they, they have the clauses in there that strike, you know, mold, mildew, asbestos, and, and all these other problems uh, as your state has required it. And so if you're in a state that's regulated, you'll see those exclusions tend to match up with that state regulation um, for the most part. And if you're in a state that's not regulated, you'll see the Internachi exclusions in there and they include, you know, plants and animals and, and other toxic uh, um, things that, that are, are bad for your health, so to speak. And then this is just uh, one we had written, um, actually started in Ohio. We started to get claims for uh, meth labs where the, the, you know, there was a flip house or an estate sale, and the inspector was supposed to tell them that it was a meth lab. Now, I know there are um, some of the labs um, that, that act as vendors to the inspectors. The inspection industry offer uh, meth lab testing and things, and so, you know, I'm sure it happens. Um, but, but we had a rash of these, and so we were trying to insulate the inspectors from liability for that, and so we had written this, um, that, you know, basically we can't be responsible if the house is rigged, to, to you know, grow marijuana if you're in a state that hasn't legalized it yet or you know, make methamphetamines, which is the much more uh, harmful one because the chemicals leach into building materials and paints and things and can be deadly. Um, so we had to insulate people from that and that's where we came up with this clause. Um, and I'm happy to provide this to whoever wants it. And then you'll often see a clause like this in the agreements. And this is just a clause basically requiring your client to reach out to you within 10 days um, or to give you 10 days rather to, rather to come back and look at a condition uh, that they want to, that they're making a complaint about. And the reason we put this in there is because number one, we don't want them to repair the condition before they give you notice. Otherwise, we may not have good evidence of what the condition looked like when you saw it versus what it looks like when their contractor starts ripping it apart or completely changes it. And so we, we really, we wanna give you the opportunity to get back out there and see this condition before it's changed. Now that's not always gonna hold up. If there's a, a, you know, a flooding event at the home or you know, a burst, like in our office that just happened, a burst water heater, um, you know, that's an emergent condition where a court's probably not gonna enforce this if they go get repairs made right away. Um, but more often than not, it's going to be a condition that they can give you notice of. 
And we do this again so you can have an opportunity to see it before it's changed. And so if you have an incident or a claim with us, one of the first things we ask you to do is get back out to the site and get as many photographs as you can and get a good handle on what the complaint is. Now, a lot of inspectors do that on their own before they come to us. But, you know, if you do have an incident or a claim in our program, you know, we encourage you to report everything because we don't count everything as a claim. It's not a claim unless we have to spend money above your deductible for whatever reason. So, you know, it's better if you report everything to us and then we'll walk you through this process where, you know, we'll help you get, you know, make the arrangements to get out there and get the, and we'll talk to you about, you know, the evidence and the photographs you need in order to best defend yourself against the coming claim. Now, I see we, it's about almost one o'clock and we were going to stop uh, one. So if anybody has questions they'd like to ask us or uh, if you want to post those, um, feel free to do so. Ben, you probably already put in the chat the email addresses and everything, right? Yep. Okay. Let's see. Insurance to another. I have one question here is I have insurance to another company. I just became an inspector. I do not have a pre-inspection agreement yet. Can your company do this for me? Um, uh, no, but the, you, InterNACHI has already done it for you. If you're an InterNACHI member, you can have that agreement that we just wrote with Nick um, for free. Um, so you can get that right from InterNACHI directly. You don't have to worry about getting it from us. Um, but again, I would, I would recommend to you that when you get that, that you check in with your insurance company because some of them, um, you know, they like to tell you how to run your business and require you to do certain things. And so we want to make sure that, um, you know, I don't want you to, to put you in a bad space with your insurance carrier. Um, so make sure you check with them about arbitration and other things um, before you use that. But again, the international one's free and I, you know, I helped create that. And so um, you don't, you don't need to be an insured. You just need to be an international member. If you're insured with us, then we'll help you if you need custom things done with it. Um, if you need to add things that are particular to your business or you need ancillary service agreements like termite, radon, et cetera, um, we do those for our insureds. Joe, there was um, Richard Graff in Pennsylvania said, I'm in loosely regulated state Pennsylvania with my agreements and ancillary addendums where we're all written by Joe Farashi standards in the state of PA, Delaware, where I inspect. If any of these new statements and clauses you have added to the NACHI agreement are not included in my agreements, is there an issue with adding them? No, there's no issue with adding them. We always understand that with, with anything related to these agreements in particular and risk management and claims, it's an ever evolving situation. Um, and a lot of what goes into the agreements is based on the experience that we've had up to that point. Now, the reason we overhauled all the InterNACHI agreements is, you know, our InterNACHI and our, our collective experience has been that, um, you know, we've learned a lot of new things since we started this insurance company. And now we don't have, you know, the big insurance carriers of the world, you know, handling all the claims and giving us limited information. Now we see everything. And so we took that, the three years experience we have in this captive insurance company together and put that into these agreements that we just rewrote and put up. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're an InterNACHI member and you're doing the inspection according to the InterNACHI standards, um, you would want the newest InterNACHI agreement. Um, but agreements I've written in the past are still enforceable. Um, there's been no big structural changes in any state's regulations. Illinois just went through some and New Jersey just went through some. 
um, and the Ohio ones are relatively new, but there hasn't been any big wholesale changes in any state home inspector regulations pertaining to contracts and agree contracts. So to answer your question, you're not, there's nothing wrong with you adding these new things to your existing one if it's one I wrote in the past. What um, do we know where Nick posted the InterNACHI inspection agreements, the, the most um, the current revised one? Yeah, hold on. Why don't we, why don't I get out of this and I'll pull that up for everybody. Okay. While you're doing that, Joe, there was another question um, that reads, if you advertise and using infrared, should you have a clause as infrared can only work in certain conditions? Well, you should always include in there um, that you should always include it with, with, with IR, you should always include something to the effect that the weather conditions or um, surface conditions, particularly with the roof, can, can change the results dramatically or affect the results. Um, this is the wrong one. Let's see. There we go. Okay. Let me just pull the link for you guys. This is the page. You're still seeing my screen, right? Yeah. Yeah, so this is the page here, and then I'll put the link in there. Um, Thank you. That's different than the page that I had had from when you guys updated it. Yeah, now again, this is a member, this is a member area, so you have to be a member to be able to access this. I just put it in the chat. Um, and these are all the new ones. And uh, you'll see, you can see here, every state we have one. And so for example, let me see if I can get in there from here. If you're a member, um, you'll go, I put the link in the chat and this, that'll take you to this page. Um, and like I said, you'll be able to see any of these agreements. Um, I because I have um, editing abilities for me to go in here and open one of these for you. I got to go through a whole two-factor authentication thing that's going to blow a lot of time for us. But this is what it looks like, and you just click on the agreement you want, and um, and it'll be populated with the language we created specifically for that state. And so you'll see. I don't mind showing you here uh, what they look like. Just use Alabama. All right. Yeah, again, sorry, folks, I'm jumping around a lot with this stuff, but um, with my office being flooded, I'm kind of, so you can see here, uh, let's get that bigger. This is generally what they look like. Um, and so a lot of the language in the agreements is the same. These first two paragraphs are the same for everything. Where things start to change a lot is in the scope of services. Now, Alabama has regulations for home inspectors. And so that's why in the scope of services in the InterNACHI agreement from Alabama, we cite to the Alabama Department of Finance, Construction Management, Division Administrative Code. That's the Alabama standards. And so from that, we're able to see what Alabama requires for your report. And we put that in there. And the exclusions that Alabama requires, along with our rewriting some exclusions based on 
uh, some of our experience. Talk a little bit about third-party service providers. That's common to every agreement. Something in there about your fee, because you know if you are charging interest for unpaid fees, I mean, most inspectors are paid before the report goes out. But if you run into a situation where, for whatever reason, you weren't, you need to have something in your agreement that says you're allowed to get interest and that they have to pay your fees if you have to take them to court for that. And so that's why this is in there. Um, we talked about limitation of liability and liquidated damages. Alabama is a state where we can use it. And so we include that in the agreement. Um, we talked about them giving you notice of a claim and you'll see that's where that appears here. And that's in every one of the InterNACHI agreements we wrote. Um, and then some basic you know, legal language. Then if you wanted to include you know, some kind of a rider for ancillary services, well, you might say, for example, here's a, a rider I created to go along with this agreement um, that is specifically for a wood destroying insect. And it's Alabama's, well, I don't remember for sure about Alabama. Most states, you know, re, you use form uh, MPMA 33. And so if you're in a state that that's what you use, uh, our WDI rider would then be attached. And again, as you can see, instead of repeating all the same stuff that's common for both agreements, it just speaks to the exact things for WDI in this rider and you can attach it. And that way you don't have to give your client two, you know, three or four page agreements. You can just give them the rider when you're doing that add on service. And so we're about to the end of, well, actually we're over. <laughs> um, and that I, we saw, I saw the advertising or the IR. So that looks like the last of the questions. Um, again, if you, if you want to reach out to Ben or I, we're always available to talk about risk management. Uh, if you're in, an insured of ours and you have questions about, you know, your inspection agreement or claims, um, you can definitely email me. If you have questions about our insurance program generally or what we offer and what we do, including the worry-free reporting, uh, the free five-year tail if you're in the InterNACHI program, definitely get with Ben uh, and check that stuff out. I mean, again, the, the beauty of owning your own company is, you know, we deal with the pricing, we deal with the claims management, we deal with everything. And so the buck stops with us. Um, so if you'd like to, you know, see what we can offer you in terms of insurance, please, by all means, get a hold of Ben. Um, and if you're a NACHI member and you want the agreements, the link's in there for you to use. Uh, but thank you so much for attending. We appreciate everybody's uh, participation. And if you have any questions you did want to ask here, uh, feel free to give us a shout. Thanks, Joe. And thanks everyone for attending.